I'm going to be reading the scripture. If you look on your bulletin, I am not Cassandra Vanderhack, uh, but I will be reading the scripture for us this morning. The scripture is found in Genesis uh, 32, 22 to 32, if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, it's church. Why don't you? Anyway, this is me trying to find the scripture. So... That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let go of me, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob answered. Then the man, Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask me my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. This is the word of the Lord. Good choice in style, Matt. <laughs> it's probably my fault. I, I've joked that I need to text Matt to ask him what he's wearing, but I haven't been brave enough to do that. <laughs> Good morning. It's nice to have some sunshine here this morning. It's good to be with you. We are looking at the story of Jacob wrestling with God. And uh, it would be appropriate to say that I wrestled with this passage this week and thinking about how to talk about it and what is helpful and what may God be speaking to us. Part of what I had a hard time working through this week was how not to work a whole sermon just using the analogy of wrestling, and that is through the lens of, wait for it, yes. <laughs> I, I'm, it's taking a lot of self-restraint for me not to just make Hacho Libre references all morning. I, I'm still shocked when this movie is not in people's top five all-time movies. I don't, it just, it is held up very well for me. <laughs> I, maybe I, our leadership team, when we do these retreats, we, we have spent one of our times watching Nacho Libre together. Uh, it's been very formative for our community. <laughs> I want to win! Okay, there, I got out. I could do this all day. So, we are looking at the story of Jacob, 
We are spending this fall going through the story of the Old Testament of Scripture so that we can be reminded of who God is, who he has been to his people, so that we can know who God is to us. And it's trying to help us answer the question of how do we live the way of Jesus in Hamilton in 2019. And the, to say to live the way of Jesus, that's our just St. Clair language for discipleship. When we talk about what is discipleship, we say it's learning to live the way of Jesus. So essentially, we're just asking the question, how do you be a disciple right here, right now, in the very place where we live and work and do life? And so we're looking at the story. We've looked at creation in the Genesis account, and I think we'll have a timeline come up here that will kind of help us through this. This is between, uh, we started Eden a couple weeks ago. Last week was Abraham. This week is Jacob. This will take us right up to Advent. Uh, and so it's, it's a very sort of short snapshot look at the story of God's people. But what we want to do in, uh, with these different characters and these different events is help highlight for us what it is for God to be this covenantal God with his people what did that mean for his people? What did that mean for us? Uh, yeah, we've talked about Abraham uh, last week and the everlasting covenant that God has with his people. Uh, I joked with someone afterwards that it's only once every five years that a pastor has to preach on circumcision. So we've done that and it's out of the way. Uh, I, I obviously was um, very oblivious to the fact that uh, our lions were in on that teaching last week. So where I joked about, oh, you won't have to talk about this with your kids, I'm describing it in horrid detail. So I apologize for that. But you know, it's life. It's natural. <laughs> I'll let you figure that out. Okay, there we go. Story of Jacob. We're talking about Jacob, 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 Jacob. <laughs> Jacob is the son of Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham. Jacob in the story, in the lineage, the family tree of God and his people, Jacob's the grandson of Abraham. And there's a, an interesting, odd, maybe curious start to Jacob's life. Uh, he's born as a twin, and even in the womb, he is wrestling with his twin brother Esau, jostling. And even as the birth takes place, the one's grabbing onto the other. Jacob is, even at birth, this sort of wrestler. He later grows up and cheats his brother and his dad and deceives them both into getting an inheritance and a blessing. And it says that Esau was sort of this... this um, proud, bigger, noticeable guy, and Jacob was just describes in the scriptures being this quiet person who had the favor of his mom, but maybe not necessarily his dad. And so he cheats his way into getting something that wasn't rightfully his, and then he's on the run, essentially. He spends the next long part of his life avoiding his brother, kind of putting his family behind him, the family that really he disgraced. And the moment that we find ourselves in in Genesis 32 that was read for us is where Jacob is on the move and he knows that Esau, his brother, is on the hunt for him. And this isn't going to be just like a casual 
catch-up exchange, Esau is coming with 400 guys looking for his brother, seeking revenge. And Jacob at this point has built up uh, a whole family for himself and actually has quite a bit of wealth and uh, possessions. And so he sends them on ahead of him and then we have this moment where he's confronted by someone and he wrestles. If you read in the passage, it is, it's very odd in its description. Like it says that, that Jacob was alone, and a man came and wrestled with him, and they wrestled to daybreak, and the one wouldn't let go of the other, and the one was too overpowering for the other, and then he said, bless me. And he, like, there's a lot of details here that are odd, perhaps. I don't know if I can do justice to trying to understand. So what is actually going on here? Does Jacob know the whole time that this is God, or does that, when does that flip switch? Why won't he let him go? Why does the man have to go at daybreak? Like, there's just sort of, I think, many oddities to this. When I, I don't know why this is what I first thought of. When I thought, well, what, what would this look like here and now? The first image that came to mind was being alone in the food court of Jackson Square, and then all of a sudden, there's just one person left, and it's like the showdown. You're like, all right, let's do this. You're just wrestling a stranger. Like, it's, we, we are familiar with these stories in Scripture because some of us have heard them before, and we know, oh, yeah, yeah, Jacob wrestled with God. But Jacob wrestled with God. That's, that's crazy. That's, that's wild. And I, I don't even know that I can try and contain that and rein that in for us. I just maybe simply want to help ask the question to say, why would God wrestle with Jacob? And what does it look like for us to wrestle with God? I think maybe that's the best I could do for us this morning. So in Genesis 32, verse 7, this would be uh, in some of the verses just before what was read for us. In this moment where Jacob knows Esau, his brother, is coming for him, it says that Jacob is in great fear and distress. So we, we don't have to guess as to what the emotional experience of Jacob is in this moment. He is being confronted with a life of regret, and now he's panicking. He is panicked. He is in great fear and great distress. And then it says in what was read for us that Jacob was left alone that he had organized all of his possessions. He'd, he'd sort of split them up and said, well, if one gets devastated, maybe I'll still have something for myself. But then he, he organized and allotted a whole bunch of other of his possessions and sent them out and rounds ahead of him as good favor to Esau to try and soothe his anger and hopefully find favor with his brother and maybe just survive. And so Jacob has a lot but it's all, he's sending it across the river. It's all gone ahead of him. And it is at this moment where he is utterly alone. He's alone and afraid. And this is the moment that God decides to show up in Jacob's life. Why this moment? God, the covenantal God, 
who has binded himself to a people, to Abraham with a covenant and to a people, just he refuses to stand as a distant observer, but decides to come near and alongside Jacob. God, the great initiator, brings himself to bear on Jacob. And he wants to see how Jacob is going to respond. It's maybe not all that unlike his grandfather Abraham, who in that place of weakness and vulnerability, God shows up and actually leaves a mark as living proof. Here is Jacob going through what might be a very similar thing to how Abraham encountered the living God. Now, in reading the text, it says that, I mean, we're given the impression that God first appears as a stranger, that it is not obvious or even recognizable to Jacob at all that this is God in front of him, that this is God who has come to meet him. What if... What if, in our moments of being alone and afraid, of being weak and vulnerable, God brings himself to bear on us in a way that we cannot recognize him at first, that we would not know that it is God who has come near? What if the unwanted circumstances of our life are actually invitations to counter the living God in our midst. It is good news that God has not left us to our own devices, but he is Emmanuel, that he has come near. And this covenant thing of God as being this initiator in our life is that he's just not willing to let us go. And sometimes he has to wait long enough for the moments when our guard gets let down and it's in the weak and vulnerable places where we get confronted with God, though we may not even know it in the moment. Genesis 32, verse 28. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. So of all the things all the things that God could have named his people, of all the things God could have done to give his people an identity, he says, you will be Israel. Israel means, as it was read, he who struggles with God. So that is the identity given to God's people, to his family, and to us, is that we are a people who are known by our struggle with God. That that is what he's brought to bear on us, is that we are invited in the hardship of our life to do it with God, to work it out with God. Because his covenant is that he is not going anywhere. I think that's pretty wild, that that's the name that God has chosen for his people, for us. Oswald Chambers says this. He says, God does not give us an overcoming life. He gives us life as we overcome. The strain 
is the strength. I think in a world of instant gratification, where we can just have what we want, when we want it, how we want it, to wait and to wrestle through something that is hard is very challenging. To sit with questions with God is a hard place to be because in most things in life these days, we can just buy the answers that we want or that we think we need, or we can find the answers very quickly in quick sort of ways. What is it to wait and to wrestle with God? One of the best sort of definitions that I've heard of what faith is, is describing faith to say it is a tenacious perseverance. That it's a willingness to hold on to God the kind of way that he holds on to us. That it is a resilient trust. Maybe God wants to meet us in the midst of our struggle. And when I say struggle, that could be many things. It could be simply hardships of circumstances that have landed on us. It could be our own failures. It could be our own angst that we carry in things. But there's an invitation for us to struggle with God. So, I mean, let me offer this. What does it look like for us to wrestle with God? This is, this is where I landed with this as I thought and chewed about it this week, uh, and I'm growing more and more convinced that the place of learning to wrestle with God is saying yes to the invitation to silence and to solitude. I think that is actually a necessary place of working things out with God. I don't think it's by mistake that the scripture is telling us that it is in the moment where Jacob is left alone that God comes and confronts him. I mean, we have, I don't know that I have to convince anyone of this, but we, we have such an aversion to being still that there may be a great many things that God is leveraging in our life to draw us near, but we simply don't have the patience to pay attention to it. Blaise Pascal says this. He says, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. (laughs) Some of you are like, oh yeah, if my kids could do that, all my problems would be solved. (laughs) Now, I'm not saying you have to agree with this, that this is absolutely right. But I am saying you can't dismiss that and that it might be right. I think there's an invitation to knowing and encountering God in quiet and in alone ways that is the necessary place that we need to wrestle and to work things out with God. Silence and solitude, it's not punishment for extroverts, and it's not an escape for introverts. I think, I think it's probably hard or has its challenges along the way for all of us because I think most of the time we actually just carry a stimulus hangover into quiet places because we're so used to being inundated with noise and with busyness. Uh, a, a blogger, commentator, politician, a guy, um, 
Andrew Sullivan says this as a critique to the church. He says, if churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, but distraction, perhaps they may begin to appeal to a new, uh, a new to a frazzled digital generation. Christian leaders seem to think that they need more distraction to counter distraction. Their services have degenerated into emotional spasms. Their spaces drowned with light and noise and locked shut throughout the day when their darkness and silence might actually draw those whose minds and souls have grown web-weary. That's a good word. Last week, uh, Elaine and, and my wife Jen shared about prayer and ways that people can Respond, that we as a community can respond together in growing in prayer, in practicing the presence of God. Uh, and a bunch of you uh, have signed up to be part of a silent day retreat next Saturday. Uh, the response has been really great to that, and there's still opportunity to be a part of that. Um, one thing I noticed uh, that's very curious to me is that not entirely, but almost exclusively, Everyone that said yes to it has been female. Which just was enough to make me think, huh, I'm not sure I know why that is. I think I have some guesses. But I'm just saying that out loud so that males in the room can sit with that. I'm not making stereotypes. It's simply an observation I think it's challenging for all of us, but maybe, maybe there's something about silence and solitude that is particularly hard for guys. I don't know. You can offer me your theories on that. Silence helps us not avoid, because really we're all hungry for something. And giving ourselves space to be present with God helps us pay attention a little more closely to maybe the things that scare us or the things that we're avoiding. We have defaults. I think we all have compulsions. We have things that we just look to as our way of coping. We eat our feelings so we don't have to feel our feelings We distract ourselves online because it's easier to compare our lives to someone else's rather than actually look at our own. We constantly putter around, hoping our busyness will produce something satisfying. We watch stuff endlessly, hoping to live someone else's life. We so quickly default to our phones because normal life stuff starts to feel dull and boring. We willingly get ourselves stuck in guilty habits because it's easier than finding another way. We purposefully dive into sinful behaviors so that we can really just locate our pain and our shame on on something rather than just carrying the vagueness of it. We, I think, are experts at medicating our numbness. I think there's an invitation in silence and solitude to ask ourselves, why do we do the things that we do? When I, 
When I thought about this for me, this is a light example. And I thought about what are, what are patterns or default in my life. I thought about this blessing and curse that I've had for a long time of being able to so easily nap. It, I know, it's wonderful. It's, uh, Jen will often just in bewilderment not understand how I can nap so well and so easily. I'm like, babe, it's, it's a spiritual gift. I just, <laughs> I exude the fruits of the Spirit when I nap. Patience and self-control are at their best <laughs> when I am napping. <laughs> It's the curse because I'd fall asleep in lectures in university and it was, I'd just be hanging on. But we, here's, here's where I've noticed a pattern and I've had to ask myself, Dave, why do you, why do, you do that? Is in the ease of napping, I, I would notice that my default or my, my sort of making a beeline to getting a little quick recharge would come in moments when I'd feel maybe particularly stressful or I'd be carrying a certain amount of guilt or shame. And just the thought of closing my eyes and shutting things down and just letting that noise go away and hoping when I open my eyes, it'll just be gone. And it's just easier to shut things down in the moment and avoid it and escape it rather than actually sit with those things. There is a wrestling I've had to do about my pattern of napping. And God has graciously revealed things to me in that that I just did not expect. But I I had to give it that space. I had to notice the patterns in my life and why I compulsively do what I do. And I think for us, spaces, whatever that looks like for us, I'm not prescribing one way of doing this. But it is the space to ask ourselves the question, why do I do that? But you actually sit with it long enough to dare to be willing to hear the answer to that. That wrestling with God is inviting him to speak into that question, saying, I don't really know why I do that thing. And it's asking God and saying, God, why do I do that thing? and daring for him to confront us on stuff that perhaps we so easily avoid. I think in many ways we, we have our defaults, we have our compulsions, because it's, it's really a survival tactic in a lot of ways. But if we don't give God permission to enter into some of these alone and afraid places, these places of weakness and vulnerability, and we're not willing to work something out with God and hear what he has to say, the cost of not wrestling with God may be that we never actually know who God has made us to be. That it wasn't until Jacob wrestled with God that God then gave him this identity and spoke to him who he was to be. I think we have to dare to go to these places to go to places where we can say, I've seen him, I've heard him, and he showed me grace. To have a tenacious perseverance. Willingness to wrestle with God and to name the things that are very real needs in our life. Maybe it's loneliness. 
Maybe it's a need for forgiveness. Maybe it's simply just a longing for more. And it is a willingness to say, God, I will not let you go until you bless me with this. I'm not going to run off to other things to try to fill that void. God, I'm going to stay here with you long enough that you meet me in this. I think there's something of that in learning what it is to wrestle with God. Let me leave you with Mother Teresa in talking about silence. She says, in the silence of the heart of God speaks. In the silence of the heart, God speaks. If you face God in prayer and silence, God will speak to you. Then you will know that you are nothing. It is only when you realize your nothingness, your emptiness, that God can fill you with himself. Souls of prayer are souls of great silence. So as we look to take communion together, I am reminded that it's often described in the Gospels that Jesus went to quiet places and to alone places to pray. He modeled something of this for us. And then we also see in the example of Jesus that he sweated out with God in the Garden of Gethsemane, wrestled to a point that I've never dreamed of wrestling with God, about whether this cross thing really had to happen. But he said yes to it. And it was on that evening that he was with his disciples. He took bread, he took wine, took a very large loaf of bread. (laughs) And he broke it in front of his disciples and he said, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That Jesus himself was willing to go to the very hard places on our behalf. And he took some wine and he poured it out. He said, this is my blood is being poured out for you. Take it in remembrance of me. And so we have these signs of the covenant of God who is with us and for us to remember that we are invited into something much greater than ourselves and that God does not relent. He's not going anywhere. He's waiting for the moments, perhaps when our guard is finally let down, to remind us of what he has done for us. Let me leave you with these words, St. Clair. We've quoted them before. They come from uh, beloved Eugene Peterson. He had this prayer that he would speak over his children every night before they went to bed. That God loves you. He's on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. Go in peace.